0: one holy and living God. Amen. Please be seated. Andrei Rublev, the 14th century Russian iconographer, wrote an image of the Trinity depicting the three divine persons seated for a meal. Like most icons, the image is painted on a gold background. Light seems to surround the figures. Icons are meant to give us a heavenly glimpse. These are not the standard Western representations of the Trinity, which tend to follow a pattern that my theology professor, Sister Teresa Kernke, used to call Two Dudes and a Bird. <laughs> no, Rublev's figures are angelic. Their gender is not immediately apparent. The three angelic figures are seated for a meal. Their heads tilt in conversation, and they surround a table. The genius of Rublev's Trinity icon reveals itself when you consider the perspective. The the divine persons are seated around the table, but at the front of the icon is an open space. There is room at, the, at God's table. The viewer is invited in, into the intimate conversation. We, the onlookers, are invited to participate in the divine life. This really is the mystery at the heart of the Trinity. Through all the grand theology, the questions of persons and substance, coexistence, all those words we use this day and don't ever use again in church... The real teaching is this. God is all about relationship. Meister Eckhart, the Christian monk and mystic, once explained the Trinity poetically this way, and please excuse the gendered pronouns, Eckhart lived a long time ago. Here's what he said. The father laughed, and the son was born. The father and the son then laughed together, and the spirit was born. The three then started laughing, and humanity was born. That description is one of the better explanations of God's life, because Trinity is all about relationship. God is not some static principle, but, as they say in Spanish, es una dinámica, God is a dynamic. Now, that phrase I just said in Spanish is more than the English word dynamic. In Spanish, dinámica calls to mind both the beauties and the difficulties of relationship. Anyone who is in or has been in a serious relationship can tell you there are lots of dynamics. I'm always surprised when people tell me they don't believe in God anymore because something happened to cause them to doubt I want to say, have you never been in a relationship? Have you never had a deep friendship? Like any relationship, the relationship God invites us to is not easy. I suspect there are quite a few of us who, asked, who, if we were asked to specify our relationship with God on Facebook, would select the option, it's complicated. <laughs> That's okay. It's more than okay. It's what God wants. Following the Christian tradition and the doctrine of the Trinity, our God is the God who is constantly present to the messiness of history. The God who is constantly present to the messiness of our lives. God is always already with us. As the Spirit of Wisdom says in our first reading this morning, and before I give you the quote, I, I've got a note Did you notice that the Spirit is referred to as she in the reading? There's the biblical support for all of you Holy Communionites who regularly rewrite the creed when we say it at church. When you say she proceeds from the Father, she has spoken through the prophets, I hear you. Here's your biblical support. Listen again to what the Spirit says in wisdom. I was daily God's delight. Rejoicing before God always. Rejoicing in the inhabited world and delighting in the human race. God delights in humanity. God delights in you. God delights in me. God delights in all of humankind. Even that sister you're frustrated with. Even the son who isn't talking to you. God even delights in that political candidate you don't agree with. God delights in all of humankind, all, without prejudice, without condition. God delights in humanity. For us, that delight often comes with more difficulty. Our relationships are sometimes fraught. Our lines of communication are sometimes broken. The lines get crossed. Since coming to Holy Communion, I've been learning a great deal about the difference in human relationships between codependence and interdependence. More than in any church I've ever been a part of, more than in any diocese I've worked in, there's an active discussion here about the role of alcoholism and addiction in this parish and in this diocese right now. Within a few weeks of my starting as your rector, I had multiple requests about the possibility of implementing a grape juice chalice as a sign of welcome for those who choose to abstain from wine. We've been doing that for about a year now, and I'm grateful. This church community hosts more recovery groups than any I have known. More people meet here weekly to say, I'm an alcoholic, than to receive Eucharist. That's a blessing. The presence of so many in active recovery has been a gift. I've learned a great deal from those who have wrestled with these demons. One of those learnings has been this language about codependence. Alcoholism, you see, doesn't usually affect just the drinker. It often affects their loved ones as well. The power of addiction can be compounded by codependency. When a spouse, partner, parent, friend, or sibling enables an addictive behavior, a cycle can develop which diminishes the humanity of both the alcoholic and the codependent person. Codependency often masquerades as love. We don't want to see our loved ones suffer. But when patterns of behavior develop, lying to cover for the loved one, staying silent toward abuse, disconnecting from other relationships, what we mean to be loved becomes codependency. Codependent people see their care used as a means to an end. Time, energy, money, and life are consumed by the disease. Human relationships are naturally complicated, but when codependence develops, natural complication descends into disordered abuse. Codependency is the shadow side of relationship. But the answer to this form of toxic relationship is not utter independence. You don't learn how to have healthy relationships by moving off to a cabin in the woods by yourself. To be our full selves, we need one another, but not in a codependent way. The idea of interdependence presupposes that participants in community are autonomous. They can survive on their own. But in interdependence, they can move beyond surviving to thriving. Think of a choir. Sure, we all love a good soprano or tenor solo. We'll be honest, there's less glory for those of us who are altos or baritones. There are good parts. Even a bass gets a solo now and again. (laughs) But if all we did here on Sunday morning was listen to solos, the congregation would get quite bored. We can make music separately, but something altogether mysterious happens when the individual singers join up in sections, and the sections become a choir. That's interdependence. It's more than the sum of the parts. We know something of this interdependence here at Holy Communion. For over 50 years, we have had a great teacher. Mary Carol Schluter came to this parish while she was still a student to fill in on the organ. She was several months pregnant at the time. Dr. Hohenshield, the rector at the time, liked her playing so much that he came to visit her in the hospital after the baby was born. Mary Carol tells me back then that mothers got a couple weeks in the hospital. (laughs) Dr. Hohenshield didn't give her an option. You will stay on, he said, to be a rector back then. She did. In his letter to Mary Carroll, the Bishop of Missouri points out that in her time on our organ bench, she has seen new hymnals, new prayer books, and seven rectors. She's led adult choirs, children's choirs, worked with staff singers and volunteers, some of whom couldn't hold a tune. She has done all of this work with grace, with love, and with a deep humility. And she really wishes I would stop talking about her right now. Make no mistake, the work of a church musician is ministry. They help us glimpse the possibilities of human community. They help us to hear what is possible when we bring our voices together. We can be more than the sum of our parts. We can, forgive the pun, work in harmony. The Eastern theologians, the teachers of Orthodox believers like Andrei Rublev, have a way of describing the Trinity. They call it perichoresis which means the dance. At the heart of God, it is said, is a dance. Our belief that God is three in one and one in three may best be understood as a dynamism, a dance. God is not static but active, moving. God is not independent but interdependent, more than the sum of the parts. God's unity is in movement. I translated perichoresis the standard way, as dance. But you could look at the same word another way. Part of the root of perichoresis is coring. It's the root for our word chorus. In ancient Greece, when you danced, you usually also sang. There weren't iPods and Bluetooth speakers. The chorus danced and the chorus sang. Translated this way, we could see the inner life of God as the movement of a choir, the interdependence found in the voices singing together. Doing so, we could rewrite the mystic Meister Eckhart. He could say this The Father sang, and the Son was born. The Father and the Son then sang together, and the Spirit was born. The three events then started singing, and humanity was born. Imagine what happens when we sing. Friends, we're invited to join in the chorus, to find the harmony. In a note of personal privilege, I finish this sermon with a word of thanks to Mary Carol. Thank you for teaching us to sing together. Thank you for accompanying us for these many years. May God bless you richly in your retirement. Amen.